Hello and welcome to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. My name is Derek McCush. For this episode in the Pathways to Peace series, I'm pleased to welcome Reem Al Salem. For 17 years, until 2016, she worked with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and then became an independent consultant in humanitarian action and refugee protection. She is now the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women, Its Causes and Consequences. Hello, Reem. Thank you for joining me today. For this episode, we'll be discussing the harm that affects women and girls and the, the violence, the insecurity, not only in terms of wide-scale conflict, but also at um, community levels. Uh, and you've emphasized the disproportionate harm that comes to women and girls. But what what are let's let's start at the beginning. What are the sources of that harm, uh, that violence and insecurity? Where does it come from? So uh, women and girls uh, worldwide are subjected to really systematic, pervasive uh, violence that they experience on a daily basis. Uh, we get a sense of that by the fact that we know that one in three. Uh, women have experienced some kind of violence. Uh, and today, actually, UN ODC and UN Women published a report on femicide, uh, saying, pointing out how elevated also gender-related killings have become. So you, you get a sense how serious it is, especially if we know that data is, is hard, hard, I mean, hard to get by good data. So it's underreported. And so you have um, underlying causes of uh, social norms. You have uh, political, discriminatory, political and legal systems. Uh, you can have uh, religious norms that are deeply patriarchal. And then you have, um, uh, you know, systematic system violence that can be perpetuated either because of economic structures, uh, because of um, institutional gaps. So, so, so when this all comes together, um, you, you get this violence. And of course, in addition to women and girls being just generally exposed to it because of their sex or their gender, the, this, the, the identity as women and girls also overlaps with other identities, you know, so they might also be members of minorities. Uh, they might have a political opinion. They might be, members of a certain religious group. So then when you put all this together, then within the group of women, there are groups that are even more exposed to violence than others. And that, of course, differs from one country to another and one context to another. If if we want to mitigate and, and bring an end to this, this violence and to achieve a degree of peace, um, how, how do we do that? For example, what what would be the role of governments in, in, in bringing that? Okay, so I think maybe we should uh, look at, uh, because you said it in the beginning, what is what is the absence of peace, right? Uh, is it, uh, because you can have full-fledged conflict, but you can also have a situation of tension, turmoil, but it's not yet a, a, a total absence of peace or a breakdown of society. And I'm deeply convinced that looking at how women and girls are treated in a society can be a good barometer or thermometer for uh, keeping track 
of the human rights situation in the country uh, and also how it is deteriorating or how it's improving. Because what we see is that when um, the situation deteriorates in a country, um, very often the situation of women and girls or groups of women and girls get worse immediately alongside minorities and other vulnerable groups. Basically, those are that are vulnerable and marginalized get more vulnerable and marginalized ahead of, you know, a full-blown uh, sort of um, uh, escalation into conflict or deterioration or, 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 or breakdown of, of society. Why? Because they are the most, among usually the most vulnerable and because there is, the system allows for it. So the the legal system does not protect them. It's it's weak on prevention. A country would not have proper policies in place to respond to violence, to offer support to victims. Um, uh, victims would not come forward. Um, there, there's yeah. There's so all these things. So, sorry, I'm uh, sitting somewhere where they are working. So, so therefore. Um, I think keeping track of the, the treatment of women and girls or, or also the level of gender-based violence is a good indicator of how society is faring and whether it's, it's doing better or it's doing worse. And therefore, trying to then put in place um, a comprehensive approach. And I know we use that word a lot, but it's actually the right word to use because it's not just the responsibility of government. Also, the private sector has a role to play, media. Uh, we have to work on education, proper education uh, since, you know, from a very young age. You have to work with religious leaders. So you have to work on all these things together. And it's, uh, it, it, it's a handful. I mean, it's a, it's a, nobody is claiming this is an easy thing to do. But, but you cannot approach it in piecemeal. And you have to be very comprehensive, systematic and long term about it. And you have to have a political will, actually, to also dedicate resources and take some courageous, brave decisions. In, in, the, in the first interview I did for this podcast, um, Marie Dennis argued very strongly that the, the number, amount of resources put into militarization, into weaponry, uh, dwarfs all other spending. And, and she wishes that those resources could be devoted to the kinds of things I think that you just mentioned, um, education. Um, other forms of support. I, I'm assuming that you you agree with her. Yes, I do. Uh, I don't agree with people who say we don't have enough resources. I think COVID has demonstrated, uh, actually the, the financial crisis has demonstrated that uh, there is money to, to go around. Uh, the thing is uh, that uh, governments and those in power decide not to allocate money except to say certain things. So there is money to bail banks out. There is money to, you know, for the war in Ukraine, but there isn't money for ending violence against women. Uh, and there isn't, um, uh, money for social protection schemes in countries. And there isn't money for, I mean, you know, so, so it's very selective, but, but there is money. Is the lack of political will related to the majority of political leaders being male? That's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I think the lack of women in leadership positions affects uh, decision making, not just on GBV issues, so gender based violence and how to combat, but everything. You know, that's why, for example, we say that we, we're going to get better solutions for combating the climate crisis if we have 
uh, more women being involved, uh, also at high level decision making, but frankly, in everything, in, in all uh, conversations around climate. So, so women, by definition, being half of society, would make <laughs> any decision be, uh, making better, uh, uh, fuller, um, and, and, and more comprehensive, not because they are better than men, but obviously because they also see things from a certain lens and they would also factor in their own sort of specific concern, including those that have to do with the fact of being women with reproductive and, uh, you know, and, and sexual health needs that are different from men. Uh, so yeah. A few minutes ago, you, you mentioned. Uh, the vulnerability of, of women and girls, amongst other vulnerabilities of, of minorities, and uh, so per perhaps we can also bring in a little bit of, of of class analysis and looking at the distinction between you know the rich and and the quite poor, um, and and the evaporation of the middle class in in some parts of the world, like where 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 I live in North America, poverty. How do dynamics of poverty fit with violence and insecurity with women and girls? So there's two things that come to mind. Uh, you know, they've um, uh, they've been doing studies on the food crisis now, uh, especially with the with the war in Ukraine. We know that the food crisis has exacerbated, become a global problem. But they've found, and I I can't exactly remember the the percentage, but what's clear is that women. Um, experience the food crisis differently and are affected by it also disproportionately. Because when there's less food on, on the table, uh, the women will get less of that. Also, I think because if there are children, you know, the woman would maybe naturally prefer to feed um, uh, her children, but also because of the other dynamics in, inside a family or a society. So that's one example. The other is uh, the climate crisis. So. We know that when it comes to poverty, the number of, um, uh, you know, women are among the predominantly among the poor. Uh, this is just across the board. So therefore, if we know that the climate crisis is exacerbating poverty, that by definition also means that more women than men will be affected by the climate crisis. I mean, it's just one example. Well, let's shift a bit and, and think globally. What about the role of international law? What about the role of international institutions? What can be done on the broadest scale? So this is something I was talking about yesterday at the commemoration of the um, um, 25th of November that was organized by UN Women at the UN headquarters. Um, as you know, there are um, international treaties that really are at the core of the international protection regime and women's rights uh, protection. And for example, one of them is the Convention on the Rights, uh, sorry, on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, the CEDAW. And then the other one is uh, when we look at girls is the Convention on the Rights of the Child. These two are among the most widely ratified conventions in the world, actually, irrespective of um, whether this country is global north, global south, economic situation, social. Okay. Some countries, of course, have, or many countries have some reservations. They, they, you know, that's, that's sort of normal, but they present a very strong foundation for holding states accountable. In addition to other, um, other treaties that, um, 
uh, that are also uh, affect women by virtue of them being human uh, and, and also principles of non-discrimination, equality, irrespective of any grounds. So my, my issue, what I said yesterday is that my issue is that these, these frameworks that are so solid and so fundamental are coming under attack. We're hearing more and more voices in different corners of the world. You hear them by sort of conservative forces. You can call them fundamentalist forces, backward, you know, backlash, whatever you want to call them, but that want to actually do away with these that are saying, why are we signatories to these? And, and some of these are also regional instruments like the Istanbul Convention, which is the only convention that very specifically and comprehensively addresses the issue of violence against women because the others don't really spell it out that much. So, so now you, ha you hear all these uh, sort of uh, whispers and sometimes even uh, uh, loud cries to withdraw from these instruments to do away with them because they uh, don't uh, go along with our traditions or our religion or our views on, on life. And the problem I see is that states who have signed these conventions and are the ones that really are accountable and are the ones that have translated them into national law are just letting this happen, are also at times entertaining it or are uh, silent about it or are putting civil society really at the front line to, to deal with with this. And, and it's, it's, it's very problematic. So, so I feel that globally there has to be uh, a move to reassert commitment to these, uh, you know, to these standards and, and to, to commit really to respecting them. Um, and, and, and to own them, uh, and, and not just leave, uh, sort of civil society be massacred, you know, by these, <laughs> by these conservative forces or forces of backlash. Um, yeah. So, so that would be, that would be one. And, um, and then we have, of course, a lot of work to do on areas where there is a gap in legislation at international level. And one example is, for example, online violence. There's a lot of violence perpetuated against women online in digital platforms. And so there is a need really to regulate online space, not just for violence against women, but just also in general, also hate, hate speech, um, incitement of hatred, uh, things that really can, can create, uh, uh, serious problems in society, but also can uh, lead to um, to to violence being committed against minorities, against groups that are different from us. So, so that these kind of spaces have to be regulated because we can't have a human rights regime uh, offline and a different one online, you know, or no no human rights regime online. So, so that needs to be um, to be done. And then the third point I would say, and this is something I'm passionate about is, of course, uh, violence is not only committed or, or entertained by the state, but non-state actors also um, are uh, are involved in committing violence. And an example of this is uh, companies, especially those that are, you know, in the extractive business. Uh, when they go to areas in countries, uh, their activities uh, will be accompanied by uh, activities that lead to increased violence against the population that is residing there. So indigenous people, uh, rural, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, farmers, uh, people in rural areas. Uh, and, and a lot of this violence can translate in the forms of increased trafficking for sexual exploitation, 
prostitution uh, of women and girls. And the problem, of course, is that we don't have a binding treaty yet uh, that regulates uh, the, the behavior of companies. We have the, um, the business for human rights framework, you know, but it's, it's, it's not binding. And, and really, there, there has to be ways to, um, um, for, for, for companies to, you know, to, uh, to, to strengthen their due diligence, but also to be formally held accountable for uh, violations of human rights, including those of women and girls. Yes, and I'm, I'm in Canada, and, and of course the behavior of Canadian uh, mining corporations overseas is, is a, a big topic of discussion here, uh, and the very slow progress uh, by the government in, in bringing forward legislation and on corporate responsibility and accountability. In in terms of in terms of talking about corporations, then there's the expanding legislation in different the European due diligence law and on other legislation to try to um, restrict harm by corporations. Are there what other roles do you see? Do you see positive roles? Do you see constructive roles that could be played by corporations? The the, the power of the corporations is quite substantial in the world, uh, and surely they have a role to play in moving forward. So they, I, I haven't engaged so much with individual companies on this, but um, it, it also boils down again to uh, true political will and uh, dedication of resources, but also uh, making tough decisions about um, profit. And, and, you know, if certain activities should be discontinued simply because they are incompatible with uh, the right to a healthy and safe uh, uh, environment for the people who live there. And I've been in areas, for example, where it's been very clear that uh, the pollution in the air or the water or the earth has created also uh, problems for uh, in pregnancies for women. You know, they've had either uh, weak babies or deformed babies or, you know, it's affected their ability to get pregnant. I mean, this is a very specific, for example, impact of, of some of the, the um, uh, activities that cause environmental degradation and, and its impact on, on, on the health of women. Um, but I, I think also there, for example, um, internally, uh, unions, I've seen interesting examples uh, where uh, workers unions, you know, if they have also more women and they have, let's say, groups of women that uh, deal specifically with the problems or uh, encourage specifically the participation and addressing of issues to do with women, that's that's very helpful, of course, including in companies, in boards, in management positions, more women. Um, and also, uh, companies are bound, uh, as you know, living in Canada, uh, in, in, in many countries, they are bound, by, for example, in Latin America, to, to do a free and honest and authentic consultation with indigenous peoples before they start operating in, in their, in their territories, uh, and, and to get the consent, the free and informed consent of, uh, of indigenous groups. Of course, this is not everywhere in the world, but in, in many countries, they have this provision. So to do it really in a, in a fair and sustainable manner and, um, and also not to use their social responsibility programs as a way just to market, you know, <laughs> um, 
sort of a, a, a positive image that is really um, not there, that is, is really just air and that is not sincere and uh, and and as a yeah as just a pr stunt uh, so so they throw a lot of money into maybe projects that on the surface look great but in fact then when you look deeper don't really impact women uh, positively or children don't lead to the improvement of the situation for the communities are not sustainable for the environment etc cetera, etc cetera. i think there we have quite a lot of uh, issues like that so really, the starting point has to be effective legislation. Effective legislation, but also effective monitoring, um, uh, ending impunity for uh, for actions like this. And um, either fortunately or unfortunately, when it comes to companies, uh, it seems that um, the 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 thing that hurts them the most is when there are court cases against them and they lose, right? The problem with that, as you know, is that it's costly. And so the affected populations either don't have the money or don't have access to lawyers that can help them or don't know how or are often fighting for their own lives, right, uh, and for survival. So they, they, they wouldn't even have the, the, the ability to put something like this together. And, and fifth is that it takes an enormous amount of time uh, when, when a case actually is admitted and if it's progressing in court, it can take years before. Uh, victims can get uh, a ruling and by then you know things might have gotten a lot worse they might have gotten displaced further they might have lost further territory and land uh, and and so on and so forth yeah we're we're about to wrap up is there anything else that you'd like to comment on or uh something where we somehow haven't covered that you'd like to um discuss yes so I feel that, um, okay, I, I feel two things. One is, of course, that we see very clearly that women continue to be very angry, very vocal about being excluded, uh, marginalized, killed because of their sex or gender. You, you only have to look at Afghanistan or Iran to, to realize that. So, so, you know, women are continuing to resist and at very high price, uh, so, so, but we, we see that, we hear them, we feel for them, and, uh, and they're there to stay until they get what they're entitled to. But at the same time, I, I feel also that there is always either a hijacking of the gender agenda for bigger political issues, or um, a deprioritization of uh, women's rights issues, again, for greater uh, political gains. Um, so, for example, take the COP uh, in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, that just concluded. They couldn't agree on a gender plan this year. It was postponed uh, for next year, despite the fact that everybody agrees that uh, women's participation uh, is important, despite the fact that there's wide consensus that the climate crisis is felt differently and exacerbates also this, the violence already experienced by women and girls. But somehow it got sort of postponed. And then when, when certain, let's say, big forces raise uh, women uh, issues, it's usually selective. Uh, it's usually, again, used as a tool for broader processes. And there's no consistency. And I feel the lack of consistency um, undermines, you know, the, the credibility of the involvement. So to give you an example, uh, some states get very worked up about the situation of, let's say, women in Afghanistan, 
But if you look at the way they treat migrant women back at home and the way they exclude them from programs or the way they push them back at the borders and don't let them in, I mean, you could say these are also women that need attention and support. So you're not being consistent between what you're saying on your foreign policy and what you're doing at home. And I think this kind of um, selectivity and instrumentalization is harmful to the overall human rights debate, because then you have people sitting in their societies and saying, ah, there are countries that are just, you know, they're just they're not walking the talk. They're just being selective. They're just instrumentalizing uh, the gender issue or certain issues. So so it, it, it weakens its legitimacy and it weakens its... Um, it's yeah, you know the impact because then there is a, a a resistance to it by by people who can see through these double standards or triple standards. I don't know if you if I made myself clear. Well, you've been very clear. Thank you for joining me today, and I wish you the very best in all your efforts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.